Well, good morning, MCC. Welcome in to the faithful few. Glad you guys are here. You braved this winter apocalypse. And uh, for those of you watching online, we're not calling you imps, uh, but we're not not calling you imps uh, for not being here in person. Uh, we're just messing with you. Uh, we're glad, however you're here, whether you're watching online, whether you're here in person, we are so glad that you would take some time out of your weekend, brave a little bit of snow, and be here um, together as we open up God's word together, as we seek to learn, okay, there's a life and I got a life. How do I live this life? And so if you're watching online, you can connect. Um, there's a link in there. Let us know you're first time here. We got a gift we wanna give you if you're sure first time here in person. I'd love to get a chance to meet you back there at the welcome table. Uh, we'd love to get connected with you as well. So we're in the series called Solid Ground. Solid Ground has all been about um, taking a, a next step in this a parable that Jesus told right at the end of the greatest sermon he ever preached. He, he, he gave his kind of magnus open, his biggest sermon, his biggest teaching, put it all in one collection. And at the end of that, he said, okay, there's kind of like two builders. And there's a wise builder who takes these words that I've said and he puts them into practice. And he's like a man who built his house on a solid ground. The storms came, the wind blew, flood waters rose and his house withstood the storm. But then there's another type of builder. He's a person who hears these words of mine. He comes in, he, he maybe even acknowledges that Jesus is true. He hears the words that Jesus says, but he doesn't do anything with them. He's a fool. And the wind comes, the waves rise, flood waters rise up and his house falls with a great crash because Jesus was maybe savior. Jesus was important. Jesus was a big centrifugal figure in his life. But when it came to obeying what Jesus actually taught, it was something that he chose not to do. And so in that parable, it says that there's a way to build on solid ground and there's a way to build on this sinking foundation, this sinking sand, like we just sung about, which by the way, great job team. That was beautiful. I love that song. Let's sing that again. Um, there's a way to build right and there's a way to build wrong. And what we have to anticipate is not just the storms of life. We have to anticipate this reality that at the end of all of our lives, and we don't get to choose when that's gonna happen, we're gonna be held accountable for what we did with Jesus, whether or not we built on solid ground. And so the reality we talked about last week as we entered into the series is we are not just living life, you're building a life. And we wanna build a life that can withstand the storm, the ultimate storm of the judgment of God. We want that to be something we actually look forward to, to say, uh, like Paul, again, what can you do with a guy who says, if you kill me, fine. If I go on living, fine. To live to Christ, to die is gain. All the religious leaders and everybody, all the Jewish people who were trying to kill Paul, when they read stuff like that, they're like, we can't do anything with this guy because he had eternal perspective. He wasn't afraid of death and neither should we. And so we come into this series today, and last week we talked about how in order to build our life on this solid ground, firm foundation of Jesus, we gotta understand the original intent. And we talked about how if you go back to the garden, if you look at when God created man and, and woman in his image to, to rule and to reign there in the garden, what we see is that the original intent was for, for God to say, not only are you created in my image, you are the only image bearers of, of me as the King of Kings and Lord, you're the image bearers here on earth. Not only am I giving you my image, my nature and my character, I'm also giving you my authority so that to this world around you, you could magnify and glorify me. We all had a good chuckle because we said what that means is everything we do and everywhere we go, it is as if at the end of that thing, we should be able to say, and that's what God was like. At the end of the day parenting, at the end of your budget, at the end of your work week, to go, that's what God was like, to image and glorify him 
so that the world knows the type of God he really is. And where that breaks down, what we talked about last week, just to recap a little bit, was we go, God, I see how you want me to image you forth. I see the authority that you've given me, and I see how you've commanded me to obey your word, your will, your ways, but I think I can do it better on my own. So we talked about last week is how, what we do in that is we uh, exchange the truth of God for a lie, and then we call that thing a life. And we wonder why when life hits a fan, that, that our God, uh, that God isn't able to protect us, save us, or get us out of that, and we don't have any power to overcome whatever we're struggling with, and it's because the God that we've actually started worshiping is no God at all. It's a God we've invented, because we created God in our own image, instead of fully surrendering to the fact that we are created beings in God's image. So today, before we dive into um, what it means to build life on the solid ground foundation and obey it, because again, this series, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through that acronym of S-O-L-I-D, solid. Uh, Last week, we talked about surrender. Step one to building on the the firm foundation is surrendering to the God who paid the price so that you could have that. If you're going to build a house, what do you got to do first? You got to buy the lot. And Jesus, by taking the lot of human nature on, coming to earth, dying on a cross, spilling his blood on the ground, he's now purchased the fact and the right for you to have a life that you can build on. You could never earn up enough or save up enough to have a down payment to buy the life that is truly life. And so he's given that to you and is surrendering to that. And then next week, we're gonna lean into what does it look like to once I've surrendered, which again, that's kind of step one of going, God, I surrender to you. But it's one thing to say, I surrender and then just kind of keep going about your life. And the, the key, the thing that you know that you actually did surrender is you actually obey the God you said you surrendered to, right? So next week we're gonna dive into that. Today what I'm gonna do is kind of have a bonus message, a message here before we go from surrender to obedience to kind of hope till the ground in the soil for obedience. Because a lot of times we think, okay, I'm gonna build this, I'm gonna build this life on solid ground. And we think that, that build project, it's just gonna happen immediately. And it's just gonna pop up and it's gonna be like what I dreamed it was gonna be. And it's all gonna be there. Anybody ever built a house? Like you, like you maybe built a house. Anybody ever built a house or a purchased house and you built it, all right? You go to the leasing agent, or not leasing agent, but you go to whatever you know, agent's house where the real estate stuff happens, where you sign all the really important papers and you get there and you start signing and you're signing and you're signing. And then 45 days later, you feel like you're still signing and you sign all your life away. And at the end of that, like the house is yours, the lot is yours and then the build starts. And that is the worst thing ever, isn't it? You ride by the house every other day to see where the project's at. You're just trying to see what things are going. You get in arguments with builders and contractors and painters and HOAs and all these other types of things because you want the build to happen now. We want it to be built. We signed it, we surrendered all those things that we signed our name on. We said, yes, this is it. And in between surrender and the home we want, there can be delays. There can be hangups. There can be storms that delay the project a lot. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my life, at least when I look at it in the rear view, there have been seasons, multiple years of my life that I would define as waiting seasons. Seasons where I was just patiently waiting on God to do something, where I had this dream and hope of what he was gonna do, what he was gonna develop, but nothing seemed to be happening. And so the question is, is a, is a, is a waiting season a wasted season? Because if we're not careful, it can feel like it is. And so we, before we get into, okay, we're building our life on this solid ground. We, wanna, we, we have this desire and this dream of a life that we want. What do you do when you have surrendered to God and the life that you wanna see 
him use you to build isn't going anywhere. Seems to be hitting hang up, paused, stopped, stalled. If you're like me, you've been in a season like that. And today I want to hopefully offer some help into that. So if you've got a Bible, go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, it's right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 1, I think, offers us some help and encouragement into this. This psalm was written by David. David was a guy who knew what it was like to be one who waited. He had a prophet show up to his house when he was a teenage boy and anoint him to be king. And then went years and years and years on the run, on the battlefield, going, God, I thought you told me that this was gonna come to fruition. He went through a long waiting season. Season where the tyrant king wanted his life. Season where he was alone. Season where even his closest friends abandoned him. And he wrote words like this. Psalm 1, verse 1. I'm gonna read through the whole thing. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so with the wicked. They're like chaff. The wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, you inspired David thousands of years ago to pen these words. It's not a stretch of imagination to think that some of the very things that were going on in his heart and his feelings that with the combination of the Holy Spirit allowed these words to be written thousands of years ago are the very same thoughts, emotions that are happening in this room. That your children, Jesus, that the sons and daughters of the Most High King God are feeling and experiencing. And so Spirit, you inspired these words to be written all those years ago and you have not changed since that very day. In the very same way you inspired them to minister to and bring comfort and courage to David, I pray that you would do the same thing for my brothers and sisters in this room and watching online. Do we find courage and hope in you in seasons of waiting? What God seems like he has promised doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. When we wanna build this house, when we wanna build a life, where we wanna walk and follow after Jesus, but it doesn't seem like anything's happening. So draw us to you in your name, amen. All right, so what I wanna do here is kind of just walk through verse by verse and we're gonna kind of nail, nail this thing down, see what's going on in here. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, we're gonna to get to the part about waiting and patience, but first and foremost, we gotta kind of lean into what's happening at the beginning. Now, David, like so many great writers of the gospel, they don't just come right out and go, hey, here's what you need to do. They'll say, here's what happens when it goes wrong. Here's what you need to do right. And here's what happens when it goes right. And here's again, reminder, here's what happens when it doesn't go right. So that's kind of how this passage breaks down, but let's walk through it. All right, so we've got a Bible, Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. All right? You guys remember last week. Last week, we talked about Satan's blueprint for building your life on sand. And we talked about the Savior's blueprint for building your house on solid ground. If you remember back when we talked about that, Satan's blueprint, first and foremost, started with looking in, that I look into myself. And again, this is a lot of the message of the entire world. Do what makes you feel happy. 
Do what's best for you. Live your truth, whatever you wanna call it. Look into yourself, figure out what is true for you and what's right for you, and, and that is your truth. That, that is what's most important. And from there, you look around. And you look around to find people who will get on board with that, who will say, yes, aye, aye, captain, that is a good idea. You know what, that's right. You should be able to do that. And then you look up and you define a God who will get on board with all the things you want him to get on board with. You create him, you redefine him, and you make him yours. And wouldn't you see that happening even here? It says, blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. Who, who doesn't go, okay, look at the word. I, counsel of the wicked. To say, hey, I, I'm going to go walk in the counsel of the wicked. When I want to understand how this life should be built, I, I don't go and look outside. I, I don't go and look around. I don't go and look and go, okay, uh, what should this be? What should this do? And I don't want to say this before we get too far into this because you're going, oh yeah, I don't want to go to the council of the wicked. I'm not going to listen to what that wicked uh, school district or what that wicked Democrat party or what that wicked Republican party or what that wicked place online or what that wicked brother-in-law or sister-in-law or my wicked mama or any of those wicked people. First and foremost, what you need to understand, friend, you're the most wicked influence in your life. Nobody has led me to more brokenness than me. Nobody has caused me more harm than me. And I'm willing to bet nobody's caused you more harm than you. And so when, when we, we have this tendency to read, um, okay, okay, so I need to be the type of man or woman who doesn't walk with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or, or go to the seat of mockers. You gotta understand, in the grand scheme of things, you're the chief wicked, you're the chief sinner, you're the chief mocker because nobody speaks into your life more than you do. And again, this is what I'm saying. When we go after building this life, and I think this is what David was after there too, is I don't go to a place where I first and foremost look in or, or look around to see how I should live this life. And David was saying, I think very clearly here, blessed is the man who he wants to know about what is true. He doesn't start inside of himself and he doesn't start around himself. Now there's something in the progression of what he walks through here that I want you to catch in on, okay? So look what he says. He says, blessed is the man who does not, look at the, look at the uh, I think they're verbs. Uh, walk, that's a verb, right, Jessica? Cool. Um, homeschool teacher uh yeah and wife so yeah uh so walk stand and sit notice the progression right so blessed man who doesn't walk in the council so, uh, just walking and then you stop right and that's when satan gets you when you're walking and you stop and then what do you do hmm let me really sit and think of, let me think about this and that's kind of how it goes sometimes right like you, you start out to this, hey, Jesus, I'm surrendered to you. You're the Lord and Savior of my life. I am walking, or do they, are they walking with Jesus? You know, this is the kind of questions we ask people, you know, when they start dating, or, or, does he walk with the Lord? Oh yeah, he's walking with the Lord. And we wanna be people who walk with the Lord. We who not just, we talked about this a lot here. We don't just uh, believe Jesus, but a better terminology would be, we are followers of Jesus and following implies forward momentum. Like we're actually foot after foot going after this Jesus character who says he is the Lord and savior of my life. I'm actually stepping towards and following. I think what happens, I know it's happened for me, is as I'm walking, I see what's going on around me. I don't know about you, but I have a propensity to um, allow my eyes to look at all the other things that are going on in the world 
whether it's things that are going on in other churches, whether things that's going on in other people's lives, whether it's things that are going on in other people's kids, whether it's things that's going on in other people's marriage. You can look around at all these other things. And, and even though those things aren't necessarily wicked, when I'm supposed to be walking with Jesus, eyes locked in on him, his will, his ways for my life, and I start looking out on everybody else's life, what the wicked one, Satan, does is he takes all those things that I'm looking and he twists my thoughts about those things so that they, even though they may not be in and of themselves wicked, I start to have wicked thoughts as I compare my life to those and I think I'm not good enough, I'm not whatever, or I judge them and I go, man, at least I'm not as bad as X, Y, Z. At least my kids aren't as crazy as them. Those are wild And then as I start to walk, then I stop. And I kind of look at it. And the stop is where it gets bad. The stop is where um, the man is uh, in Target and he sees a cute girl on the other aisle. She just, they just walk by. He walks, he just sees. But then he's like, you know what I forgot? A toothbrush. Just so happens toothbrush was the aisle she was on. Your toothbrush isn't old. Your wife bought you one three weeks ago. Um, And he goes, and he goes to that aisle. Stop what I'm doing. I'm gonna change paths. Because there's this this really wicked thing inside of us sometimes that goes, sometimes it can be good. Most of the time it's very wicked. I wonder what it would be like. I wonder what it would be like. I wonder what... hmm. I wonder, I wonder. And that's, that's not a good place to be. Because in order to start wondering, what do you gotta do? You gotta stop what you're doing. You gotta take your eyes off of what Jesus is doing and start daydreaming about what something else could be. Now there is a good place for dreaming about the plans that God would have for your future. But most of us know that times when we have actually uh, stopped walking with Jesus and we stood in those moments, we weren't thinking Jesus' thoughts. And then we start to sit. We stop moving towards Jesus and we stop moving at all. We just take a seat. And a lot of times what happens is we go, this is just what my life is now. And what Jesus says is, if that's the route you take, that's building your house on a foundation that's definitely not gonna serve you well when the storm comes. But then he offers the alternative, the godly alternative. Look at verse two. We're gonna pack, we'll probably spend a little bit, more, probably most of our time here. Verse two. He says, okay, blesses man who does not do those things. He doesn't walk with the counsel of the wicked, stand the way of sinners, sit with the uh, seat of mockers. And again, there's a progression to sin. But verse two, okay, here's how he really is blessed. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Pause, hold up right there. If you're anything like me, now let me just talk to the fellows in the room for a second. There's nothing delightful about laws to us. Like we don't just go, that's the speed limit. I love that speed limit. Here's what I have to do on my taxes. I, it brings me great pleasure to do this. Here's, what I, here's how I have to load the dishwasher. I love loading it this way. Here's what I have to do with my socks and my towels. Here, I love this way of doing these things. Most of us, we don't just get amped about rules and regulations. They're things we buck against because there's just something in us that's just a natural rebel. Rules, regulations. And so you can read a verse like this. It says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And we go, I feel like I'm really far away from being that guy. So what I want to do is, in the time I have, as we unpack this, I want to hopefully show you this verse in a new covenant context. Here's what I mean by that. If you look at your Bible, 
Look at your Bible, please. Um, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. All right. So that word law right there, uh, if you translate that from Hebrew, that's the word Torah, which that's actually the word that is for, you know, the t- new, oh, no, well, man, sorry, uh, the Ten Commandments and then all the other uh, health, dietary, um, all the other uh, restrictions that God gave to his people, all the laws. That's what the Hebrew word for Torah is all of that. All the things when Moses came down from the mountain, gave them the main 10 commandments, but then a lot after that, he said, this is how you need to govern your life. Everything from don't eat rabbits to don't lust after your neighbor. All of that included, that's the Torah, okay? Now we hear that and we go, okay, well, does that really still apply for my life here? Like in 2022, friend, no. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Now, let me be careful what that means. That doesn't mean that like those aren't really good ideas that we should just throw out the 10 commandments and never listen to those. But what Jesus does is he comes in and he fulfills those and says, hey, there's a new thing on the scene. And the new thing on the scene is not law. I'm coming to fulfill the law with love. I'm actually turning the dial up because in all the places that law would say, this is what's required. Now love is saying, this is what's required. If law said, don't commit adultery, love said, don't lust after a woman with your heart, in, your, in your eyes or your heart. If the law said, don't murder, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, hey, um, don't even have an evil thought about them. Don't even uh, treat somebody like they're dead to them or in doing so, you will have murdered them in your heart. He comes on the scene and says, hey, this is where law is. And you thought you could be a righteous, good person by obeying the law. Newsflash, you can't. Everyone has fallen short. He says, I'm setting a new standard of love. And he sets that standard of love so high that only by through his love living through you, you could ever reach it. So when you hear that word, when you think law, I want you to know that even that word law, Torah, it also better translates as instructions or directions. Now, I feel like we've gotten a decent understanding of law because I know that's kind of a trigger word, especially for the guys in the room of going, oh, I'm not really crazy about laws. I don't just get fired up about those. Let's go back. It says, but his delight is in the law. Again, most of us aren't delighted about laws. But I want to take you to what I think that, that word there is uh, the word K-fats. Everybody say K-fats. K-fats. It sounds like something that's like a keto version of fats. I don't know. It's K-fats. I don't know how to dis- uh, describe what that means. K-fats. And it's oftentimes it's translated as a word pleasure. Now, when you take that, and maybe you put it in a little bit more of a new covenant context, and you say, blessed is a man who finds pleasure in the instructions of God. Well, that's a, it's not making the Bible more palatable, but that's probably a better understanding of what it's actually after here. Blessed is a man who finds pleasure in seeking the instruction and direction of God. Now, again, think about it like this. If you're God, your father, you create people in your image, they're your sons and your daughters. For those of you who are parents in the room, you know this to be true. When you create rules and regulations in your home, which again, if maybe you didn't know this, that's actually a really good idea. So set some boundaries. This is a good idea. I know I'm talking to some millennials out there uh, who are parenting. Welcome to the world. Um, It's a good idea to set rules. Uh, Free range parenting is not a good idea. Um, Here's what you need to do. You set these rules, you set these regulations, but every parent in the room will tell you this worth their salt. They'll tell you that at the end of the day, they don't want their children to just begrudgingly obey what they set as the rules and regulations. They want their kids, and again, maybe this hasn't happened yet in my household. Maybe it's happened in yours. It usually doesn't happen until they get out of your house and then come back and go, thank you for actually setting some boundaries. Um, I don't, maybe it does happen before then. I, I've not seen it to be true yet. 
But what parents all would desire is that the kid would go, mom, dad, thank you. I actually had pleasure in obeying these things. And again, that's crazy. We, we don't get there. Um, most of our kids aren't coming downstairs and going, you know, you tell them, to, you know, go, go clean your room. It would be my pleasure, mom. I can't wait to go do that. I love that. That's a great idea. You know, nobody, none of you gave your teenage daughters instructions on, on what type of person to date. And, and they didn't just go, mom, I delight in these instructions that you're giving me. I've, I'm so thankful for these boundaries you've set around curfews. This, I'm, I'm delighted. Like, thank you so no, Like, again, that didn't happen. But deep inside the, every, every heart of a parent, you want it to be that way. Because in the heart of the parent, you know you created those rules and those instructions not to constrain and to take something away from that kid, but to give them a safe and productive life, to provide for them and protect them from an enemy. You created that to be something that, that was good, Right? So in the very same way, that's what our God and Father does. And so when David, he writes this as a guy who's trying to live his best, uh, who's trying to follow after God and his decree and his law, he says, blessed is a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. So I come to that verse and I, I go, you know, if we're gonna build our house on the firm foundation, everything hinges on this part right here. Do I actually find my own pleasure? Do I actually find delight and joy and going, God, I want your instructions. I'm not gonna move until I have your instructions. God, I want what you want in this situation. I want what you want in my life. And that's the thing that actually gives me the most pleasure. And see, most of us, we have an absolutely backwards view of that thing, especially that word pleasure. Because the word's kind of robbed, the world has kind of robbed that word pleasure for us. But if you go back to God's original intent, go back to the garden. A fellow's in the room. I mean, think about it like this. You're in the middle, you're on top of a mountain in the middle of a beautiful garden, perfect openness and oneness and intimacy with God and perfect openness, oneness with your wife, fully naked and unashamed. You can't tell me that's not an environment that God created for pleasure, for his creation to experience pleasure. Fruit trees everywhere, fruit post pre-fall. There's a river with gold in it for some reason. I don't know. It's just like God's just showing out. Like I just want you to see this cool gold river I made. That's, that's this whole environment. God created it for them. Here's what God knows about you and what, what, he, what he knows about me. God will be most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. He, he will actually be most glorified when we are most satisfied. And pleasure is something that brings us to that place. I had a really great steak last night. I glorified it. I said, this is a great steak. Just, just perfect. Just, just really good steak. And you know that. It brought me pleasure. My mouth. Pleasurable experience. All up in my mouth region. And I glorified my wife for purchasing good steaks and even myself a little bit for cooking it the right way. So most of the time I get it wrong. And you know that to be true. When you experience something that is good, you glorify it. So God wants you to actually experience the good that he has for you. But it comes by going, God, what you have is actually the most good. And going, more than I seek anything else, more than I seek pleasure from anybody else, I seek your will, your way, and your direction and your instruction in my life. And I find pleasure in obeying it. So he goes on from there. Verse three, he says, okay, if you're that type of person, 
person who uh, more than looking around, more than looking to other people, who, who actually finds delight in following the will of God. If you're that type of person, he says, this is what you will be like. He says, he, and again, this applies to men and women as well. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Everybody underline those two words, in season. See, this is why I wanted to lean into this before we get into what it looks like to obey and to continue on building this house on this firm foundation. See, we can get there. We can go, God, I'm surrendered to you. I'm, I'm surrendering to your will and your way. And I want you to build this house. I, I, I'm seeking, I'm finding pleasure in your instructions, how you would lead, how you would guide. But then we get really frustrated because we don't see things happening as fast as we want them to happen. I want you to see this first. There's a truth in here that I don't want you to miss. He says, when you do that, you're like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Here's what you need to know. Just because there is no fruit does not mean that growth is not happening. Think about the tree. Think about the tree. The tree is there. If it truly is planted beside streams of living water, if it, and again, what Jesus, uh, David, when he's writing this, the metaphor that he's given there, he's saying, the man who, or a man or woman who meditates on God's word, the man or woman who is saying, God, I seek pleasure. I, I, I delight in your law, in your instruction. When you do that, it's as if you're saying, I am planting myself in the place where all the nourishment and all the resources that I need can allow me to grow. The question is, was the tree still growing even during the seasons where there was no fruit on the vine? Was it still growing? Yes. Here's what Satan loves to do in my life and your life. He likes to get you convinced that because you don't see fruit, nothing is growing. He wants you convinced that because you don't see the marriage the way you want the marriage, that it's not growing, that he's not working, that nothing is happening. He wants you convinced that just because you're kind of still in debt, nothing is growing, no good things are happening. He wants you convinced that just because, you know, and again, these are even some of the lies that he wants me convinced. He wants me convinced that just because maybe there's not necessarily a giant full auditorium for both services, that he's not working, that he's not growing. What he says is very clear. If you delight in my instructions, if the thing you seek most and find most pleasure in is knowing without doubt that you are being led by me, son, daughter, ma'am, woman, you're growing. Fruit is coming in season. So don't believe Satan's lie just because you don't see something on the vine that you're not growing. Because if you're in the water, if you delight in his ways, then growth is happening, whether or not you can see it or not. I would say this truth to you, whether or not you've... Um, experiences or not, the truth that I found to be so foundational in this is that with God, and again, key word there, with God, a waiting season is never a wasted season. God doesn't, he doesn't waste seasons of our life. The growth is still happening in those places. He's developing things in those places. He's creating character in those places. Even when it feels like you're waiting, even when it feels like you're wasting your time, he's developing things in you that that have to happen. Think about Jesus. Jesus, as he starts his ministry at 30, he was well past what would have been deemed as you are officially a man now. That, that time in Jesus' life would have came somewhere around 14, 15, or 16, where he would have been looked at as a man. So you have Jesus from 15 to 30, 15 years of his life, 
where the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the one who can heal blind eyes, can, is capable fully of walking on water, can do all of those things. And I'm not necessarily saying he did or didn't during those things, but we don't have those recorded. It leads you to believe that from 15 to 30, God was working on the character of even his son. And if God is gonna allow, even in Jesus, there to be a season where he is growing, but the fruit of the ministry is not apparent and obvious, where do we get off thinking that we may not go through a 15-year period where it doesn't look like there's any fruit on the vine? There may just be a season like that. But we gotta know that what God did in those 15 years was foundational to the God that Jesus was. That, that more than likely, there is not a Jesus who can go through what he went through had God not done those things that he did in that time. And it's very same in your life and my life. So I want you to see where it goes from here. He says, this is the man. He would be like a, 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 a tree planted by streams of water, yields fruit in season, a leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does prospers. Again, it may not look like it prospers today, may not look like it prospers tomorrow, but whatever he does will eventually say, that was a prosperous thing. Then again, he talks about in verse four, What's on the line if we don't? He implies by saying it. He says, not so with the wicked. Which is, which is hard to swallow right there. Because what he implied by what he's saying is if you're not somebody, if you're not the man who delights in the law of the Lord, if you're not the woman whose desire is to seek the instructions of God, if you would rather just say, well, I kind of know what's best and I know how they need to do this. Here's how you should chew. Here's how you should load the dishwasher. Here's how you should do this. And I've just got everything defined of how it should be. And I want to control every single circumstance. So it is the way that it is. And I want to control all of this. And I'll check in with God so that he can sign off on it and maybe underwrite it because we're going to need some support. If that's you, the hard part in this is Jesus goes, I believe this is what he's making here through the prophet David or King David. He's saying, that's not so with the wicked. And the reason they're wicked is because they said, I would rather follow my instructions. I would rather do what I want to do. It says they're like chaff. The wind blows it away. I don't know about, uh, if it's still doing this. I got here really early this morning and the wind was crazy. Anybody else experienced that this morning? Wind was crazy. Like you had to kind of counter steer how you were driving. And I believe the point that David's making here is, is that is our life. Our life is one that we've blown apart by the wind. We will think we're building this big, vast, elaborate thing, but it's a house of cards that when the wind and the storms of this life blow, they're gonna be blown completely away. Verse five, he says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. Their house will have fallen in the crash, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And I love verse six. He says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. He watches the way of the righteous. He watches the way of the righteous righteous. And I hope that brings you as much courage and comfort as it does me. To know that when it comes to that R word right there, that righteous, I'm not depending on my own. I'm not depending on my righteousness because my righteousness, again, my righteousness to God is of filthy rags that is by Jesus taking on my unrighteousness, I can now stand before God as one who is righteous. 
both as the righteousness that I know even in the moment, what we talked about is the imputed and the imparted righteousness. You've heard me talk about that before. The imputed righteousness that says, like I could die today and I'm gonna stand before God because I have been deemed righteous. My soul is saved. But then the imparted righteousness that goes, I am still a work in progress. I'm being sanctified. That righteousness is coming. And so in the meantime, if I had to sum this up, if I could add another uh, verse to the psalm, the verse I would add to summarize is it blessed is the one who finds pleasure in saying no to pleasure and understands that that's part of the building. That I would actually be someone, and this is crazy to think about, that I would actually find pleasure in saying no to pleasure. That when the enemy knocks and says, here's a shortcut, here's a shortcut, and it'll feel good. And listen, let's be honest. Sin does feel good for a little while, right? It, it, it feels good until it doesn't, until it backfires, until it all blows up in your face. It, again, Satan's not dumb. He puts that on the hook and he lets you bite down and it gets on your tongue and you taste it. And then the more you chew on it, the more you realize there's a hook in this thing. And that's why I believe Jesus is saying, would you find your ut- utmost pleasure and following after me and my instructions, my will and my way. I think that's why Jesus in, in Mark, I mean, uh, Luke 9, 23, he said these words. He says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, deny themselves. They must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. If anybody wants to be my disciple, here's what you've got to do. You've got to deny yourself. Now, again, there's no way <laughs> That, in, that I will be able to deny myself if the thing that I delight most in is not pleasing myself. Does that make sense? Like I'm not gonna go and, and ever be able to truly be a disciple of Christ and deny myself if I'm all about myself, if I just want myself to be happy, if I want myself to have what I want. I'm never gonna be able to deny it. If you wanna be a disciple, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross daily, which means, <laughs> I think it's Jesus' way of saying, and I love how Luke is, Luke is the one who kind of adds that daily part into the passage, which I, Luke was a doctor. I think great attention to detail. I think that's probably what Jesus was really after there. Um, that denial is not something you're gonna be able to do the day you get baptized. You go, today I am, den- I am dying to myself. I'm taking up my cross. I'm following you. And then think the day after you get baptized, you're not gonna have to wake up and do the same thing right over again. No, it's gonna be a daily process. Taking up your cross, saying I'm dead to myself putting my needs, my wants, putting that behind, and following you, Jesus. And the last passage I'll leave you with, but hopefully it will bring you some encouragement. It definitely leads into the reality, but hopefully brings you some promise. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. I want you to turn there. This, this has been a verse that's been key, foundational for me in my life this past season. Um, Hebrews 12, 11. It says this. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. And all the church said, <laughs> right, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Now, you may ask a question, you, you get a verse like that, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Well, where does that discipline come from? Well, sometimes the discipline that you face in this life, it's gonna be because you brought it there. Again, God will forgive you of all your, all your mistakes, but sometimes you make a mistake, you're gonna have to pay for the consequences and there's gonna be discipline in those consequences. Like if I go out of here today and I eat 15 bowls of chili, I'm gonna face some gastrointestinal consequences. There's just no way around that. 
But oftentimes, God allows discipline to happen. We talked about this last week in storms. God will allow storms to happen in your life. And the storms that he allows in your life are parts of his discipline. The Bible makes it very clear that the, the father loves the one he disciplines. And he will allow that discipline to take place. He will allow some storms to come into your life. And again, we talked about this last week. He will allow some of the storms to come in your life to reveal the foundation that he knows is there. Most of the time, we have no idea what our foundation is. We think we're just building. And the reality is we're building on a false identity. We're building on a relationship that's gonna crumble anyway. We're building on finances. We're building on the stock exchange. We're building on a Republican party or Democrat. We're building on all these hundred different things. And God's going, this is a very bad foundation. And it's based on a God you created, not the one true God I actually am. So I'm going to allow a storm to come. It's going to bring you some discipline in your life. And again, he makes this very true. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Anybody who started eating kale this year knows that. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. I love the next half. If it was just that, I'd be pretty miserable. I love the next half of the verse. However, and this is the hard part too. Later on, <laughs> later on, not in the moment, like we talked about in Psalm 1-3, in season, later on, it produces a harvest. Harvest is coming. Later on, it produces a harvest. But without the discipline, there is no harvest. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Every person who's ever a good house builder had to be trained into being a good house builder. I live in a neighborhood where a lot of houses are being built right now. The other day, I, <laughs> I was riding out of the neighborhood and there's a pitch on a roof. There's probably like the slope of these stairs right here. And I saw this dude and he's, he's definitely shorter than I am. He's a little bit wider than I am. So I think he had a better center of gravity than I did, but he's no ropes, no nothing. He's on this roof, just walking like he's walking on flat ground. And I'm like, wow, that's intense. And like part of me just wanted to slow down and just see how this went. Like this is, this is intimidating. This is wild. That's impressive that you can just walk on this roof. And see, the point I'm trying to make to you there is if you're going to be the type of people, if you're going to be the type of follower of Christ who can actually build your house the right way, it's going to take some years of discipline. It's going to take some seasons of going through something painful to be able to show you actually how to build on the firm foundation. It's gonna take some discipline to go down to the solid rock. But what he promises there, that there will be a harvest of righteousness and peace. Now again, it's crazy, like it could start storming way more than this today. But if you've got milk already at your house, if you've got bread already at your house, you, you know you've got good electricity, you you got a generator down in the basement somewhere, you got solar panels on top of your roof, you know you've got all of those things. What do you have? You have peace because you know you're actually prepared for whatever storm may come. And Jesus is saying, that's the type of life I want you to have, but it's only found in me. And the hinge point, the hinge point of all of this is verse three, to say, I actually delight and desire in your will, in your ways, in my life. So my hope and my prayer as we get ready to receive communion, that you would see that it cost Jesus his life to make that harvest of righteousness possible to be birthed in your life, to bear fruit in your life. That righteousness, that harvest doesn't just pop out of your life, 
because you tried harder. That, that harvest doesn't pop out of your life because you did a better job. That harvest doesn't pop out of your life because you put some extra effort into it. It comes because you fully surrender to Jesus. And so Jesus, your will, your way, and here's the key, your time too. And if this is a season where there's no fruit, remind me deep in my heart that there's still growth. As you receive communion today, I pray you take it. I pray you contemplate on, on what areas of your life maybe you're still holding back to Jesus and they're the ones that you, you surrender for a little while and then you're quick to take back. I pray that you lean into the places in your life even where you're saying, Jesus, I've been looking to a whole different areas worth of people for instructions on this. I've been even looking to myself for instructions on how to do this. Would you invite him to bring you pleasure and saying no to it. Saying no to the pleasure that you want. Saying no to his shortcuts. I don't know about you, but in my house, um, it's been built, anybody live in a house that's been built within like last 10 years or so? If you do, and, and maybe even if you live in one that's older than that, you've, you've uncovered some shortcuts that the builders took, right? You're like, why does that wall do that? Why is that under there? Why when I flip this switch on, the light goes on way, like what's going on here? There, there are no shortcuts. In the same way that Peter showed up to Jesus and was like, Jesus, no way. We're not going to the cross. You're God, there's gotta be a different way. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That's his way of saying, there are no shortcuts if you are ever gonna be brought back into the kingdom of God, if you're gonna ever have access to the Father, there is no shortcut. The long road is to the cross. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be painful, but it's gonna produce a harvest because I'm gonna trade all of my righteousness for your filthy rags so that you can be counted as a righteous of God. And I pray as you meet with him today, you thank him that he didn't take a shortcut. And you ask him to reveal to you even in your life where you have been. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, how true it is, how its promises remain the same. I pray you speak to us as we partake of this broken body and this poured out blood. Juice and the bread, it represents more than our minds could ever fully fathom. But I pray that we sense it in moments like this that you would speak deep into the hearts of your sons and daughters in this room and remind them of who they are in you. The righteousness is now made available. They would find pleasure in you. They would delight in your will and your ways and your time. In your name, Jesus.